It's Golden Hour Adventure Time, featuring everyday people doing extraordinary things. From the peaks of victory to the valleys of defeat, these are their stories. Now, from the back of the pack, your hosts, Justin and Robbie. Welcome to Golden Hour Adventures. Today, we have my coach, Eve Rebenak. Uh, Eve is the owner of Rising Mountain Coaching. She's also a super badass ultra runner <laughs> with, with multiple uh, top top three, top 10 finishes. Um, welcome to podcast, Eve. Hi, thanks for having me on. It's good to be here. Um, very excited to support this adventure for you, Justin, a sidebar on uh, coaching you for a while. And nice to meet you, Robbie. Nice to meet you. Yeah, I think we've been working together. Um, I was talking to someone the other day. Um, as you know, I recently got into coaching and somebody was asking mm-hmm. me about coaching. And I was like, yeah, I I also have a coach. I, I can't advocate being a coach if I myself, you know, yeah. don't go through the process as well. So I was telling that person, I was like, yeah, I think I've been coached for almost a year and a half by Eve. Yeah, that's it, what I was thinking. It's been about a year and a half. Yeah. She's been dealing with me for a year and a half is what the problem what it really is. <laughs> no, it's been a good uh, year and a half. We've had a lot yeah. of growth and uh, we've been through a lot of stuff in that time. Lots of yeah, stuff. yeah, we so, have and hopefully a lot more to come. So no, it's good. And I really love when um, runners that I have worked with for a while get into coaching. I think that's a really positive testament to the type of coaching relationship we have actually like what a better testament to how successful you feel your coaching relationship is that you want to give that to other people. So I really, I have several uh, athletes under me who coach uh, with RMC and, and without, and it's, I just think it's really great. Yeah. That's awesome. That's cool. Yeah. Well, enough about me. Let's get into talking about you. So um, how did you get into running? Um, So I have been running off and on since I was a kid. I first got into running as a sixth grader. I went to a tiny rural school and our middle school and um, high school went together to cross country meets and my sister was a senior. So I joined cross country only so I could be in the same sport as my sister, which, you know, as a senior, she was not too happy about. (laughs) Um, And I didn't really like it, uh, but I I started writing track after that and I did like that. And at that time I was a lot more uh, focused on competitive gymnastics. Um, and I broke my arm a couple of times during middle school and that was the end of gymnastics. So I switched over to running just, uh, I don't know. I think because I was told that if I did another like sport with balls, like volleyball or softball, <laughs> I was going to have to have pins in my arm, but if I didn't, I could keep going. So it was running by default. Um, my freshman year as cross country runner. And then I loved it actually. Uh, at some point I started loving it. Uh, so I ran all through high school, cross country and track. I was supposed to run in college, but uh, the beginning of some health issues were cropping up then. So my parents encouraged me not to run in college, which was the right choice. Um, then I took a big step away from running in college and grad school and living abroad. Um, I got back into it when I was 30, after my oldest was born, I um, I have chronic hypertension and some related heart and kidney issues that were diagnosed in my early 20s. And because of that, I was on bed rest for half of my pregnancy with my oldest. Um, and I was dreaming about running during that bed rest. So once I got clearance to run again, I was like, all right, I'm going to get back into running um, and step back to it. I love it. I missed it. Uh, then we moved back to Ohio and I found that I could do trail running again. So for the past 13 years, I've been doing trail races only and skipped, uh, road marathons altogether. Um, <laughs> and then I moved out to Arizona a little over 10 years ago, finally got talked into doing an ultra and the rest is kind of history. So nice. Yeah. Nice. So, yeah, so I, I was never a road runner. That's kind of the. The point of this, I never, I've done a couple road half marathons that were hilly routes that people talked me into. Um, but yeah, I've never, I kind of an untraditional route. I just skipped the road running part. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that uh, you you just were like, I'm not running another marathon. 
No, <laughs> just... I, always, I always have people giving me a hard time about that. And I had one training partner who was like, you absolutely can't run a 50K, my first one, without doing a marathon first. And I'm like, I don't know, watch me do this. Which <laughs> I don't really like that. You know me as a coach. I'm not like, come on, let's break the rules or let's go hard. Like, that's not who I am. But this one, I, I didn't want to run that road marathon. So <laughs> still have not run one. What was, uh, so you said you've never ran a road marathon? I have now I have done twice, 26 miles on road, but not a, like not, not a an race. official race. I've never done a race. Um, I've done a couple trail marathons. I've raced the distance and I've run the distance on asphalt, yeah. but never in a timed setting. I've, I've never, I've never gotten a BQ, which like I probably could do, but I, I don't know. It's not my thing. So. You know, I see a lot of people and a lot of people are going to be really mad at me and I'm sure we'll lose one <laughs> follower out of the two that we have. Uh, but I, I see a lot of people letting like a BQ define who they are. And it just seems yeah. like, you know, oh, I'm not a runner unless I qualify for Boston. And I know so many people that, you know, that it's kind of been like that. And it's just like, you can go be a runner and not ever qualify for Boston. Obviously, you've done it, which... Yeah. You, you have the capacity to do it. We all know that, but yeah. um, I don't know. I just, I see that all the time where it's like, you know, that is who I'm defined by if I don't go run Boston or one of the world majors. And I don't know. Yeah. I feel like that our, our niche sport, you know, it's a lot smaller than the road marathons. Um, you know, I just, I feel like we, we are those type of people like, nah, eh, you don't really have to go do that. You can just go run a... Well, I, I like it too as a coach. I like to point to that to say that you don't, because I'm always telling my athletes, you don't have to, for example, with ultras, everyone thinks you have to immediately go through the distances and the end goal is always 100 miles. And if you're doing anything other than 100 milers or working your way up to those, there's no like role for you, room for you in the sport. And that's, that's really not wrong, right? Um, there's, there's room for everyone. And it doesn't matter where you land in the distances or kind of the path you take to get there. Um, whether it's traditional or non-traditional, there's room for all of us. So I think me skipping over the road marathon route is just kind of a, a testament to my philosophy and that <laughs> you can get there any way you want. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I love it. Sorry, I thought Robbie was going to ask something. He looked like he was leaning over to ask something. I was, I was like, all right, well, let me wait. <laughs> it's all good. We don't really edit anything, so no, we don't like, edit in ours either. So we'll be a, a lull you know. and a break in in, in the times. <laughs> awkward silence. What, what okay. was your What was your first ultra? My first ultra was Whiskey Basin, um, in Prescott, Arizona. So it's about two hours north of Phoenix. I think it's north west of Phoenix, but I'm not really sure. Um, Anyway, at the time it was a 54K, but I think the route now is around 60K. So um, yeah, that was in April. And I actually, I just kind of signed up for it. So uh, that fall, like September before that, um, I met this woman, we started running together, doing long runs in the mountains, and she was going to do rim to rim to rim in May. And our first run, I was like, I didn't know what I was getting into. And I'm like, oh, I want to do that. And I'm free that weekend. And this will be my Mother's Day gift to myself. And so we were planning to do Rim to Rim. And then she was telling me about all these other runners who were doing Whiskey Basin 54K. And she's like, you know, you're already running the mileage. You have no real reason to not also do this race. So uh, so I signed up for it like as a glorified training run, I guess. And I had a great time. It was super, super fun. And for me, I had been running um, a lot of 15 to 35 Ks, and I'd been podiuming a lot, um, which sounds lovely, but it also was sucking the joy out of the community aspect of running because I was getting in my head and I was feeling a lot of pressure to perform. Uh, and I found when I bumped up to the ultra, all that pressure was gone. I just had to survive the distance and I didn't know what I was doing. And that was amazing. And so lifting that pressure um, to go faster and worry about performance was just really uh, what I needed at the time. And uh, so I did that. And then we did, I think, five or six weeks later, rim to rim to rim, um, which is also awesome, but very different. Uh, yeah, so that was back in... 2017 yeah don't don't let anyone don't let her fool you guys um i just pulled yeah. up the results 
Uh, she uh, in her first ultra, third yeah. place. And then later that year, she ran her first 50 miler and got oh, first yeah. place. So don't, don't <laughs> let me be like all modest here. Like, oh, I just, you know, no pressure or anything. But uh, at the same no, time, no, it, it went well for you. I'm not going to lie. Like, <laughs> it, it went well. I sort of felt like I was coming home. Like I found my spot. And um, for me, the training wasn't that much harder. It was just a lot more fun. Um, so I don't know. It just really, it was, it was so much fun. So once I started doing that, I, I never really looked back. It was just great. So, yeah. And it's brought yeah. some amazing people into my life. That's, that's always nice too. <laughs> um, so you mentioned earlier that you, you formed some health problems. Um, and that's the reason why you didn't want to, or your parents advised you not to run in college. Yeah. Um, how has that affected your running and your your ultra running and racing? Yeah, so um, in college, I in high school, I was having issues with uh, frequent urinary tract infections, frequent kidney infections, and I mean like kidney infections every other month that were landing me in the hospital was was a little um, extreme, and it was mostly a hydration issue that we resolved later. But in the course of doing all this testing, they found out that I have some. Uh, just some genetic defects that led to hypertension. So I've been on medication for high blood pressure since I was 20 or 21, uh, which is very strange because I was a distance runner and I'm vegetarian and I'm definitely not overweight. Um, so I mean, anytime I go to the doctor, they're like, wait, what? I'm just now getting to the age where hypertension is like a common thing for people. So um yeah, so it's just uh, just a pure genetic fluke, and I think it would have been more severe in my running if I had been running more seriously in my 20s, um, but during that time, I was just working it out with uh, normal life and pregnancies, which was difficult enough on its own. Um, one of the issues that I've had to deal with with hypertension is finding a medication that doesn't dehydrate you or cause cramping. Um, so I've been lucky enough to work with a cardiologist for the past four years who's very non-invasive with uh, the course of action. Um, he doesn't over-medicate me. He doesn't uh, push for procedures that aren't necessary. Um, and he's very comfortable with me running because um, endurance sports don't really elevate blood pressure very much. Things like strength training do. So I have a couple of benchmarks that I know. Like, for example, if I start to have a certain type of heart palpitation, I'm done with the run. It doesn't matter if it's a race, doesn't matter if I'm winning, doesn't matter if it's training run, it's just done in that moment. And then I have to go check some things and usually it's okay, but it has definitely ended some races. Um, I have a lot of issues running with viruses because they tend to cause some inflammation around my heart. I have a secondary medication I take to kind of flush that off, but it comes with a lot of side effects and it's not something you can take in the middle of a race or even a training run. Um, I don't do well at super high altitude. It, it's kind of is a wild card for everyone, and when you have a hypertension and a tendency for any swelling around the heart, it's an extra wild card. So I don't race above 10k ever. No big deal. Plenty of races below that. So yeah. it's pretty minor stuff. It's scary sometimes in the moment, um, but you know, uh, being educated is good. I I had a season uh, coming out of COVID where. I had tweaked my medication and it was overcorrected and missed some appointments during COVID and it remained overcorrected. And I had issues uh, during three races in a row because of that. So I am only mentioning that because one, lots of DNS can happen to even good runners. And two, stay up on your doctor's appointments if you take uh, medication regularly, because it's not a good thing to keep like autofilling and teledocking if there might be. We I missed some symptoms. I chalked them up to other things. And if I had just casually shared with my doctor he would have said oh let's adjust this and it would have been fine so yeah i remember yeah. last year uh, i believe it was tahoe rim trail um yeah. you know the whole coaching team was behind you watching you following you tracking you and then yeah the next picture we see you're you know sitting in a uh a hospital bed and we're like oh my god <laughs> what's going on yeah i spent three and a half hours in medical there um I get, I had a, the air quality was super bad. There was massive smoke in the air and um, it 
just it caused some issues. And so I had um what I get is like a blood pressure spike. And then when it goes down, you have this adrenaline dump, you almost pass out. You usually vomit heavily. So I that happened and I was vomiting for like an hour and um it was bad. And I I was so mad because I was I had done everything right with hydration and food. And I remember I, every time I could talk, I kept telling my crew like I didn't make a hydration mistake. I didn't make a fueling mistake. I was so adamant about it. Um, and it was kind of out of my control, but my team, uh, they patched me up and my fiance, like made me, he had me on like a manual IV with sipping, sipping the water. And, uh, finally they sent me back out ahead of the cutoff. Um, I didn't make the next cutoff, which was like 50 K later. Um, I wasn't able to move fast enough to stay ahead of it. And they pulled course markings erroneously. So there, there was that too, but either way, uh, it was cool because it sucked and it was awful in the moment, but it was cool to know that you can come back from that and still go back out. Um, but the result of that is when I mentioned that to my doctor, that specific thing, and I said, I'm sure it wasn't a hydration issue. My electrolytes weren't off. Um, then he figured out that we needed to relook at the dosages of my medications. Oh. Well, that's good it you have that relationship with your doctor because I can't imagine just going into a doctor's office and be like, yeah, I was running this 100 miler and I was 70 miles in. <laughs> yeah, you no. Know, it's just like, <laughs> that seems so like I'm, I'm very fortunate. for another yeah, time. I'm really lucky. I live in Phoenix. I'm in a major, major metro area. Phoenix is the hub of Southwest uh, medical experts. We have a Mayo Clinic there. So we have a lot of really good medical stuff available to me. And the, the cardiology practice that I work with, uh, I went to them, I changed from another practice to them specifically because they worked with a lot of athletes, a lot of professional athletes. Um, so I wanted someone who had that in mind and they joke whenever I go in for some of the stress tests and the heart, like I, I think I have the current record there for how many minutes you can get up to it and you like max out what the machine can do with the stress test. And then don't, <laughs> yeah, it's, it was like me an Olympic level swimmer, like, and I, I think I hold it now. So, but they're, you know, they're set up for that. And so they, the doctor's goal was always to keep me running. Um, so I feel very lucky that I have access to that. And a lot of it just has to do with living where I do. So I don't yeah. take that for, for granted. I can't imagine. Um, I mean, all the things that you have to deal with in an ultra to begin with, you know, you have to be on top of your your nutrition, your hydration. Uh, am I changing my socks at the right time? Sure, <laughs> like, yeah. There's a number of things that you have to have in your mind as well as doing trail math. Um, you know, but you're having to add that one extra uh, huge part of it and, you know, have to have people out there with you as well that have to be on the lookout for that. And that's got to be yeah. a huge thing. I remember so actually, at one point you said that there's only a certain person that will pace you through the night just because they have. Well, to so I actually, I, I prefer to have pacers. I typically don't run overnight without pacers or really anything because because I have had to take so many medical DNFs and I don't like, um, I don't like putting that on, uh, uh, race staff, if I can help it, you know, I'd rather have my own crew be the ones who are inconvenient. So, um, I have plenty of people who have paced me, but I, uh, there was one race where, um, I decided to drop because I didn't think it was safe to continue without a pace. Well, neither, neither did the aid station people, but they, <laughs> it was during COVID and they weren't allowing pacers and someone from the aid station offered to go with me. And I said, well, you can't, we can't bend the rules. Um, it was really sweet, but that person who was going to go with me, I actually saw uh, a year, a little over a year later, this past year at Tahoe, which I did finish. And I saw that young woman at the aid station where my fiance finally told me that I was running for a podium spot. Um, we were like not that far from the finish. And I, he had just told me I was running in third. And then I look and there's this woman and she's like, did you run in canyons? And you took a D and she's telling the story. And I'm like, yes. And she's like, that was me. And we had this beautiful, like, I'm like, oh, okay. I gotta go. I'm hugging you. And now I'm going to go get third place. So it was really <laughs> nice. Like, um, this is really nice connection moment where it kind of all came full circle. Um, and that's the kind of thing that I try to focus on with the health stuff, because if it gets in my head too much, I'll never, I'll never like make it onto the start line. I have really bad race day anxiety already um, because of this. I'm always worried that like, 
my body is going to betray me, but um, focusing on those positive connections and things like that really helps keep me out of my head. Yeah. You mentioned your uh, electrolytes being off. How do you know when your electrolytes are off? Uh, just like anyone else. Um, sometimes for me, I get the added fun of little zingers in my heart. Um, but most of the time you can tell by things uh, like finger swelling is a really common one. Um, uh, a change in your sweat pattern, either excessive or reduction in sweat, uh, abdominal uh, bloating, sometimes just GI distress. Um, and then sometimes if you do have any heart issues, you may have some extra type of palpitation because uh, basically anything you have going on with your organs, if you are slightly dehydrated or your electrolytes are off, more or less same thing, um, you're going to have issues with any of those other organs that are already problematic uh, because the body wants to shunt all of its resources towards keeping your organs functioning. Um, any change in that you're going to feel. You mentioned uh, your your comeback at Tahoe, and you and you you hit on it a little bit your your podium race. But let's go let's go over that because that was kind of a big deal. You DNF the year before you yeah. pulled yourself because of medical issues, or you missed the time cut off because of medical issues. Cutoff, yeah, but you decided to go back to it, and yeah, you got a podium. Yeah, and um, I wasn't going back to it for redemption, so to speak. I really just wanted to finish the race. Um, I really just wanted to run that race and complete it. Um, I had a connection, like a little bit of a connection. You know, the course felt special to me. I, I really just wanted to do it. So I went back and thought, well, I'll, I'll give it one more chance and we'll see. Um, yeah, and I made a bunch of mistakes like leading up to it. So I went, and I went into it with low grade food poisoning. So it oh wasn't gosh. like it wasn't like the best um, setup. And I remember thinking like ten miles in, I remember thinking, oh man, I'm way hotter than I should be, and I'm a desert runner. So if I'm thinking that ten miles in, it's bad news. And I'm like, oh, I'm already more tired than I should be. Like definitely, um, the food stuff is taking a toll. But uh, but I also had a lot of resolve of just um, egos at the door. I'm not worried about how I finish. I just want to finish. And I think, you know, as my athlete, like that's, that's how I coach you. I coach you guys to try to finish and put it out there when we can do it safely. Um, and it's not always about the big flashy finishes. Uh, I did happen to pull out a podium spot. It was an extremely hot day and it was a uh, third place of attrition. I outlasted some other people. <laughs> um, 32 hours. It was it was a long time and it was rough. But uh, yeah, but I, I felt re very resolved while I was out there. And there were a lot of problems, but we just kept um, we just kept making sure enough was going right that I could keep moving. Oh, I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I was we we saw you uh, when you finished, and it was just like, oh my gosh. She oh yeah, I was, rallied back and... I was tell a little bit about that finish. So I did throw a little bit of a internal temper tantrum in the last um, four miles. It's not my proudest moment. I I was tired. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I was with my fiance who was a little under condition for the terrain and the heat, and so he was struggling. Um, and I forgot that when they changed the course, uh, which was new in. 2021 um it's 104 miles thereabouts it definitely was like i dnf the course i had friends who finished it i knew it was 104 i just forgot that day so we get <laughs> to this aid station which i had run out of water i'm a um petite runner a desert acclimated runner i i used the low end of water and i ran out of water between the two aid stations and i was like oh it's real bad if i'm running out of water um everyone else is too so we get into this aid station you could see the finish line like so far away for like 15 miles you could see the finish off oh the my gosh, like a cartoon awful. it never gets closer <laughs> and we're on this exposed jeep road so aid station and there's this nice downhill right after that um, and they're like, yeah, you have four more miles. And I'm like, what? It's 104 miles. And I just was so mad about it. So we go in this last four mile section. It's really hot. My pacer is like, okay, you're good. There's no one behind us. Just if you want to go off and leave me and go run hard, that's fine. If you want to just lollygag because you've got third sewed up, that's fine. Whatever you want to do. So I was fluctuating between like waiting for him because he was really struggling and like, 
running super hard, like eight minute miles. Oh. I was so mad about still being out there. And, <laughs> and, you know, then I'm like overheating and like actually causing myself issues. And I still have three miles to go. And I'm like, Eve, come on, calm down. It was so dumb. So then the, that last half mile, I was like, all right, finally, now I can angry run, run it in. But yeah, there was a little bit of a temper tantrum. But when I finished, it was just um, a, a relief and a lot of gratitude uh, for the people who, you know, support me to be out there and make sure that I can safely do these things. So it was <laughs> nice. <laughs> oh, I will tell too, because if you saw the pictures at the end, um, I have a beer, which I could not actually drink more than a sip of, and a donut, which I think I tried to bite and couldn't because I was just too hot. Um, but we got a finish line picture with a beer and a donut because we have this awesome picture of my fiance, like nursing me back to health. But I, I'm laying there in this cot. I look gray and definitely not well. And he's in the background with a cup and a, a donut because they had those there. So he's just like having a beer and a donut. So I said, when I finished it, I would get my beer and donut, but then I couldn't even consume them because I was so overheated from angry running. So, oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, it was a good race. Yeah, I don't know where that video is at, but if anybody, somebody looks up the video, it was so funny. Just you were yeah. flying coming down. Yeah, the it was right. Like every time <laughs> I look at that video, I'm like, how was I doing that? But I will also say too, um, I do. I always kind of encourage you guys with um, with your training to know that those really sucky, hard training runs that feel awful, but you finish them anyway. Those are things that you file away in your brain for when you're in a tough spot in a race and you're like, okay, this sucks. But I know personally that I can run more than four miles on hot desert terrain, even when I feel awful because I've done it a thousand times. I can probably do it blindfolded. So I kept telling myself that when it felt like super hard and awful that I've trained for this. I've been training for this stretch of desert terrain for years and years and years. So I think there's a really big takeaway there with um, the mental side of training and the hard runs um, and how they build that mental grit in a really tangible way. Yeah. That's like the, uh, the 50 K on January 7th in Alaska that you scheduled for me. Oh, did I schedule that? I think you were like, Hey coach, it sounds like a good idea. And I was like, okay, Justin, if you want to uh, die, that's fine. by me. <laughs> Yeah, it might be I like mean, negative 40 at that time. So yeah, yeah, I look forward <laughs> to hearing about how all your gear holds up and how you keep your water from freezing. That so might be I'm a gonna... 50k on the treadmill, to be honest with you. So yeah, I mean, <laughs> 50k on the treadmill actually sounds more pleasant than running in that. So I don't know. We'll so see. You can do both. You can like alternate a few miles outside. A few miles oh, outside. yeah. It would take me longer to take all the gear off and put it back on than it would be to be just worth it <laughs> just to true. run. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> oh my uh, gosh. That's totally true. So you mentioned um, race day anxiety. Um, I know there's a lot of runners out there that have that. Um, and Robbie and I kind of discussed that before um, a little bit kind of with podcasts that him and I have had. And I don't really have race day anxiety. It's more just like, I'm ready to start the race. I don't really mm -hmm. like... I, you know, I, I don't sleep before a race, maybe like well, a hundred, I won't sleep before, but you know, a smaller race that, you know, I don't have an issue with it, but I, I think it's just more the anticipation of starting the race versus the anxiety. And, and Robbie was the same thing. Like his last 50 miler, he slept, you know, 12 hours the night before. So, <laughs> um, no. like what, what do you go through? What kind of advice do you have for people that are oh, suffering man. from the, uh, race day anxiety? I, I don't know that I have the best advice because I don't know <laughs> that I'm handling it that well. And I think it's, I think it's pretty common. Um, I've always had it since I was a kid. Uh, and I think it's, for me, it stems from putting pressure on myself. Um, but then, as I said, it got exponentially worse when I started to doubt my body because um, normally I, up until a point, maybe in the middle of COVID, I, I train really well, train really consistently, train really hard. Um, it's always clear by my training what I'm doing, what I'm training for. Uh, I've never under-trained for anything. Uh, and then I had to take a step back from that. So then it wasn't just the, the many DNFs in a row and many things of 
trying new game plans and not, not working, I also had to alter my training. I wasn't able to keep up in my own training. Uh, my coach at the time missed it too. Um, I kept saying, I'm struggling to, to keep up with all of this. So I had this huge dip in, in confidence. Um, but I did what I would, I do now actually, not, not just did. For many of my own races, uh, during my taper weeks, I do what I do for my own athletes. And I pull my numbers. I look at what I've run, what I was able to achieve in the training block. And I remind myself that many athletes, including many that I coach, run adequately these distances on that mileage. So I, you know, I pull the numbers and convince myself of that. I also use a lot of mantras, especially at the start line, which I will be honest with you very often, the two minutes from leaving my friends and family to lining up at the start where I have to decide how far in front of the pack I'm going to line up, I often start crying. It is so stressful for me. So I'm often crying at the start line, like all the <laughs> videos where I'm like, eh, to my partner, I'm like sniffing behind, like I have my sunglasses on and it's because it's, even though it's dark, you know, it's, it's terrible. Um, but what I do try to do to get myself from walking away from the start line is mantras because the rhythm and the repetitiveness of them is a lot like that repetitive footfall. And once I get into that left right rhythm of saying something like, you're strong, you're tough, you're strong, you're tough over and over, then the muscle memory takes over and the training takes over and I can go. I've been going for a half mile or a mile by that point. So I think um, relying on your training and also building up some of these, these mental things like mantras um, in your training process is good. Uh, I use the same mantras when I'm doing a hard training segment too. So there's, there's carryover. Um, that's where 12 for me to keep me from, from leaving the start line. So. Yeah. I think in every athlete, no matter, you know, what they're doing, if the, you know, they're training for a big event you've got months of training in it, there's always going to be some doubt leading up to the race when you're starting to taper for it, it's starting to get mm -hmm. real close. There starts to get doubt. Um, I know last year when, you know, when we were leading up to my hundred, I was having doubts about it uh, yeah. just because it's such a big it's a big effort. I've only done it one other time prior to that. And so I didn't know what to, you know, what to expect. It was, I'd never seen the course before. Um, there was some climbs that I've never, I've never climbed that high of climbs before. Yeah. We, we got hit with like extreme heat. Of course that happened to me in every single one of my races <laughs> last year. Um, so that's why I signed up for a winter race. <laughs> if Texas is 70 degrees, 80 degrees, I'm, I'm quitting ultra running. Oh man, that, that race is, it's going to be misty to rainy and cold oh, and muddy. That's what it always love is. It. Define cold though. That's what I want to know. Um, but, below 50. Oh yeah. Okay. I'll be sweating. <laughs> um, you, you're going to be like, it's a sauna. <laughs> that'll be a hundred degree difference so yeah um, that's pretty extreme we'll have to do sauna we'll have to do sauna training for uh for <laughs> a 30 degree, degree race. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway leading up to that race you did exactly what you said we pulled all of my numbers and maybe i wasn't running as high a mileage as what other athletes or someone who's running a hundred miler maybe have done um for you guys out there i ran 12 to 13 weeks at a 40 mile per week um effort i i went up a couple weeks up into i think it was 60 maybe a 70 mile week mm -hmm. and then i tapered so um you know that was and kind that was of for a, a mountain bit. 100 i would that wasn't for like a flat 100 so yeah yeah definitely definitely was <laughs> yeah. does that does that mileage include your hiking mileage no, that was just running. So I do want to add that you had a couple hours per week, like I think two to three hours per week on top of that of, of vert hiking. Yeah. So that's oh, it did count that. It did. Yeah, it, it okay. definitely did count that. Yeah. So. But but that's kind of the one thing that I wanted to, to bring up in reference to that is you were talking about, you know, you only ran 40 miles X a week, but you were putting in here I am talking about my back of the pack again, you're putting in this amount of hours mm -hmm. uh, in that. So, you know, we relied more on my hours of training as opposed to my mileage of training. And yeah. um, we were able to piece together uh, a finish. And so <laughs> it was a good finish. You ran, you ran well. It was a finish. It was a good finish. <laughs> on a tough day. That's, that's always a, a good finish. But I mean, that's, you know, you're talking about that example that it, it and happened. Really good stuff after that. So, uh, yeah, 
I think you're our guest, not me. Come on. <laughs> Robbie, what you got? Uh, so when you were talking, you mentioned grit earlier. And um, how do you talk about grit with your clients? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I think that the way it comes up most often with my runners is when the training runs get hard. When they hit that point of cumulative fatigue about six to eight weeks out from their goal race and the mileage is high. And it, it doesn't really matter if it's a hundred miles per week or 30 miles per week. If the mileage is high and new, newly high for that runner, it's, it's the same stress level. Um, so I think reassuring them that it's supposed to be hard, that things feeling hard is actually okay. Um, that we're actually there for it to feel hard and sort of, uh, we, we talk a lot, actually, this phrase isn't as common now as it was three to five years ago in the sport, but embracing the suck. And I think there's there's a mindset shift that happens, particularly with ultra running, but other with the other distances too, where um, you have to accept that sometimes, and sometimes a lot of the times, it's not amazing or even good, but those lows allow for some really good things to happen after that. So I think just uh, being aware that it's okay for things to not feel good and that that's normal. Um, and just accepting it is that's usually my best advice for people. Yeah. Does that sound right, Justin? Is that what I say? <laughs> <laughs> I like the embrace this uh, cause it kind of like, you know, I, I, you, you are right. I did see that for a while and then it's kind of gone away. Um, mm -hmm. and I don't know why, because that, that is kind of what it is. Like ultra running sucks when you're it in, does sometimes. when you're in those yeah. long training runs by yourself early morning, like I got to go get yeah. a 25 miler in it, it, that's kind of sucks sometimes. And then yeah. when you're 70 miles into a race and you're just like, <laughs> what is going on? Like, I'm so sick and tired of putting food in my mouth and oh, I, know. I don't want to drink this water anymore. And it's just like, that sucks. You know? It does suck. It but. sucks when it's hard to drink water. Like, that's not like, what a weird <laughs> sport. No, but I think um, for most of us, the magic happens in those those moments right after the suck. And so I'm not saying that we're intentionally trying to suffer. I think that we're looking for transcendence and you have to have something to come through to have those moments of transcendence. And that can be that little moment where both feet are off the ground in each run or a big moment where you see your second sunrise of a hundred miler. Um, but acknowledging that those low spots, whatever they are, is, is part of it is uh, makes them a little less scary. I think talking about it too helps talking about it with other people and expressing that you are feeling um, like self-doubt and having other people remind you that you can do hard things and be gritty helps too. Like hearing that you are gritty helps you believe that you are gritty. So that's a good thing too. <laughs> Self-actualization. Um, I guess that's something else I do for my runners too. Sometimes when we talk about pulling the stats is sometimes I will remind them of particularly hard runs that they mentioned that were really awful, but they, they did it or everything fell apart and they were vomiting at the end of this long run, but they, they did it. So, um, because I have a, uh, Justin, you like this because I can pull out and have a big picture view of their training. We, <laughs> uh, we talk about that sometimes too, these runs that they've maybe forgotten from a few weeks back. So. Eve is very good at the end windows. Not on purpose. I mean, this one was on purpose, but usually not on purpose. <laughs> uh, that's funny. So you keep mentioning your athletes and uh, how you train them. So let's let's jump into that. What what made you want to become a run coach? Yeah, it's a it's a complicated thing. So the, I didn't really. Um, I mean, I I had a whole other career in uh, applied linguistics. I teach taught English as a second language at the at college level. And I really loved that. Um, but then life took me in a different direction. And I was doing that very, very part time. Um, and looking for something else to shift into. And, uh, I kept actually resisting coaching. Um, I kept saying, I didn't want to do it. It felt like, it felt like if I started doing it, I would never go back to my other career, which I really loved. Um, and which is actually what has happened. Uh, I have not gone back to teaching, but um, 
Yeah, then I had enough people uh, ask me about it, actually. this It sounds so lame. I was really reluctant to start coaching. I was afraid I wouldn't be good enough at it. And it's a big thing when people put trust in you. And I, I have that with teaching, too, where people are putting trust in me to teach them things that they need to get to the next level of university. Um, so anyway, uh, one person was particularly persistent and I'd been coaching kind of like casually, just my friends, just for fun. And I finally said, okay, let's do this. And once I said yes to one person, then I said yes to like four people. And, um, I actually had lined up the RRCA class that fall, but I started coaching in March because I had enough people asking and, um, then by the time I took the class, I was like, well, I'm six months in and I'm coaching 20 people. So it was, it was a strange experience. It was really nice to talk with the, the instructor, but it was, a, uh, yeah, it was, it was a little strange. Um, but it was a good confirmation that what I was doing was, was going well. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, so I, I started coaching in March and in April, I had a really significant um, performance race that gave me a little bit of media attention and that dovetailed nicely and kind of um, picked up focus on coaching. So I was able to grow the business pretty well. And uh, by the time like halfway through 2020 with COVID, I couldn't teach anymore anyway. So uh, I put all my attention into growing the business and here we are now. So how many, uh, how many athletes does rising mountain have? We have somewhere between 70 and 80 right now with, uh, technically five coaches. So myself, and then we have Zach Marion and, uh, Nicole, I Castillo, but I think she, I don't know if she just changed her last name. Um, and, Sue Robertson here in Vegas. And then we have uh, Megan Kupris, um, who's a strength and conditioning coach. So uh, it's, yeah, so they they all coach um, pretty part-time and we're trying to grow that aspect of things. I coach full-time, so I carry about half those clients myself. Um, it's definitely a, a full-time gig um, with it, but but I love it. And it's uh, the skill set from teaching, writing lesson plans. And even uh, I was some lifetimes ago was working on a PhD. And even some of the stuff I use for codifying data transfers over really well to run coaching. So a lot of the things are the same skill sets. So that part was um, surprisingly, I guess, an easy transition. And it, it was nice to be able to rely on some of the things from my, my past career with with this change. So, yeah. Yeah. That's uh that's pretty cool. I didn't realize you had y'all had that many um, athletes, 80 athletes. That's yeah. <laughs> I when know. does it, yeah, when does it become too much for you taking on X amount of clients? I'm sure. You yeah. Know, like, so that's, cap. that's been interesting. So I cap myself pretty hard now at um, about 30 coaching clients and then I can carry uh, five to 10 more that are where I'm writing a training plan, but not giving active coaching. And that number fluctuates some because I have some runners who are at a higher level of support where we have like a weekly phone call, more contact time. So if I have more of those, I don't take on as many new, but I, um, I can carry enough to do 40 hours of work in the week. Um, sometimes if you have any experience with small business or extensive hobby. Like if I'm coaching 40 hours of work a week, how am I getting to the mailbox or, uh, <laughs> to, you know, my, uh, the, the calls that we do every week, for example, those are extra. So I'm putting in extra work. So, um, about two years ago, I started realizing that I, I had a cap and I started a wait list. And then I started saying, Oh my gosh, I need another coach. Cause I'm just waitlisting. I had a wait list 10 deep at one point. Wow. Um, so then we, I started talking with other coaches and saying who, instead of just referring out, let's bring someone together so we can collaborate. Um, so right now, like I, I personally, right now I'm accepting new clients, but it's the first time and that I've been actively like advertising for myself in about a year and a half. And the rest have all been um, either returning clients to me or I fit them in here and there as one's off cycled or we've pushed them to the other coaches. Um, luckily with the other coaches, we all, ha we have a lot of, uh, variants and a lot of overlap, but kind of our own specialties. So it's, it's usually pretty easy to find a good match with 
anyone who comes to us for support. Uh, yeah. And I also will say that I have a, a, a seasonal, I have some seasonal patterns with big races and run camps. And so, um, like from February and March, I don't usually take on new athletes because I'm focused on the run camps. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah that was the thing you started up last year, right? The run camps. Yeah. Yeah. So last year I didn't take on myself for about six months. I didn't take on new runners. I took some who had been with me before and came back, but I think I didn't onboard anyone brand new for at least four months because I, I knew that it was going to take a lot of extra work to do those things. Um, I mean, it's just you, you know, that extra work comes from your training, your sleep, your friend's time, your family time. So, um, yeah. 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 It does get, I, I could see how it would get to be a lot and, you know, 30 yeah. to 40 athletes is that's crazy. Yeah. Especially if you have, you know, people like me who like to text me like, Hey, what about this? What about that? <laughs> no, it's great. Like I love my athletes. And I think, um, I don't want to, it's, it's doable. It's manageable. And it gives me a high degree of flexibility. So there's, there's a trade-off with doing this um, full-time versus a more traditional job. Like I split time between two States and I travel a lot and this job allows me to do that, which is fantastic. So any of the inconveniences of that, I could also coach fewer people if I charged more. Um, there's a, a co well-known coach in our sport who advocates for that, for coaches charging more and not, not working with coaches who don't charge under like 200 an hour because they coach too many athletes. But I have some issues with, uh, setting a price point that's inaccessible to the average person. So I keep our RMC's pricing solidly in mid, uh, field, you know, for industry standard, uh, for trail and ultra specific, because if we were a road or a tri company, we could definitely charge more, but that's part of it too. Like, you know, it's a, also trying to make the bills. So it's small business stuff. It's, uh, it's tricky. I think that makes a big difference to be honest with you. Cause, um, me particularly when I was looking for a coach, that was a big deal. Cause you know, a lot of people, you know, I had a, a few extra dollars to toss towards coaching. Cause this is my passion. And I, you know, yeah. I, I'm saying I'll probably never be like great at it, but I would at least like to be good at it. And I've noticed yeah. a huge shift in where I am and finishing and the results that I've gotten from just working with a coach. And so um, whether it's working with me, working with you, working with, you know, Robbie has started up doing a little bit of coaching as well. And, and so it's like, you know, whether we advocate for ourselves or we advocate for just getting a coach, I think that makes such a big difference in the athlete's ability. Yeah, to I, I think so too. I think particularly with ultra running, the learning curve is so very high. And if you want to do more than just survive, it's helpful to have an expert, um, not just guide you, but also customize things for you. And I think it's particularly helpful if you're like, like most people, if you're in an area where you don't have ready access to the trail and ultra community. So if you're not in Boulder or Phoenix or um, I can't think of anywhere else right now, uh, San Diego that has, you know, ready trail access and a huge amount of people, then you don't always have other people just to ask in, in your training process. So having some expert in your pocket is, it's a good thing. Um, and there's, you know, there's a lot of people out there who can coach well, and it, it doesn't have to cost a fortune. Um, but I, I do also encourage you to ask what you're getting from your coach, because I'm very upfront with my athletes about, I coach a lot of runners. However, it's my full-time job. I'm one of the very few coaches who does this full time. I don't do anything else. So um, I think it's when you are investing in yourself, you should really uh, do the research and make sure you're getting what you want to out of it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I follow a lot of coaches on Instagram too. And it's just kind of interesting, like how, you know, how you see some coaches who are always blasting out their athletes and what they're doing. And then you see some that, you know, I never hear anything about what their athletes are doing. And so it's just, you know, that's interesting to me. It's like you, you would think you would want to blast out your athletes because that just speaks to what you are doing. You would. However, I will tell you the other end of that, especially if you're coaching more than a handful is like, I have to ask my athletes for, for photos and for permission to post. And yeah. it generally takes like, I, I try to do that, but sometimes I fall off. Uh, like right now I'm way behind on the RMC Instagram page, although I've been up to date on my stories because 
as you, particularly if you're coaching a lot of people, I generally have no fewer than six athletes racing three weekends out of the month. So it's a lot of upkeep. And I think, um, especially if you're looking at coaches who are also competing, sometimes you don't have the headspace for those extras um, that maybe you should, but it's sometimes it's a lot of work to do those. Yeah. So I'm just, I don't know. I'm, I, I guess I'm feeling behind right now. So I'm like, <laughs> give everyone a break. <laughs> I just called her out. <laughs> it's my, it's my post COVID vaccine being like, we're all just doing the best we can. <laughs> no, no, but I, I agree with you. Like generally speaking, I think it's nice um, to focus on the athletes and see what they're doing. And I like to see that from my, my friends that do coach and it's fun too, to see what other people have done and share that. So, yeah. It's definitely yeah. cool. So, yeah. uh, let's, let's get back to you, you racing a little bit. What is, uh, what is your most memorable race? Mm. It doesn't necessarily have to be an ultra, just your most memorable. So I think really, um, I think Tahoe, the, the back-to-back Tahoes were very memorable. Um, and all my hundred milers have been very memorable just for what they are. And then, uh, the races that I've won are very memorable in that regard, because obviously good performance but the race that really like got to me especially in a way that I didn't think it would was Canyon de Chez 55k and I don't know if you've heard of it but it's run in Canyon de Chez on Navajo land and it's a very small race I think it's uh, maybe 200 maybe not even that many um it's run with uh tribal approval the RD is is Navajo and it's the only time that non-Navajo can be in the canyon without being on a Jeep tour. Um, and Sean, the RD, Sean Martin, uh, he does the night before and the morning of before the race, he does some ceremonial stuff that's very, very special. And you're running through there and it is impossible not to feel this immense connection with the land during this very narrow I, it's probably considered a slot canyon. It's probably narrow enough to be considered that, but it's more, it's it's not like you can touch the walls or anything like that, but the walls are very, very high. And, you know, a lot of it's shaded even in the middle of the day because the canyon walls are that high and you run through to the end and climb out and then run back. Um, and at the end, they have this huge award ceremony where top 10 male and top 10 female all get to pick from awards that were handcrafted by Navajo people. And the race director talks about like his little auntie that strung this turquoise necklace. Um, and they honor the people who've done the race multiple times. They honor the oldest finishers of the race. And it is just very special. And you're very connected with the land and the people. And I, um, it's a lottery entry and I can't speak highly enough about entering into the lottery and giving your money to this race in particular, because it is an incredible experience. Um, they are running the race this year. They have, haven't been able to run it the past two years because of COVID and, and the dire impact on the Navajo nation. So um, yeah, that it's a great race. I can't speak highly enough about it. Although I, I put in my name for it when I was pacing and really sleep deprived and just kind of as a lark. And then I like forgot that I had entered the lottery Um and when I ran it, it was super bad timing and <laughs> it wasn't my best race in the world, but it was still really like really good, <laughs> even with having that, not like the most amazing performance. So, oh yeah, the things we do. <laughs> I don't yeah. think I'll ever forget to enter a lottery that I entered a lottery. <laughs> I'll just get an email one now, day and but... just, yeah, I'll just get an email one day. Like, congrats, you've been just selected. Like, oh. Oh. Yeah, it was one of those like maybe next weekend. I think I was just like looking around because I was bored waiting to pace and crew. It was during Rocky Raccoon, actually. And it was cold and I was sitting in the car and um, you know, just like on ultra sign up as we do. And I'm like, oh, it's the last day. It's just a 55k. I'll just put in for it. And uh yeah, um and it would have been fine, but my partner had gotten into Spartathlon and we had like just flown back from Greece a few days prior and it just, it was, it wasn't great, but it was still an amazing race and everyone should put in for the lottery and, and then not forget because you paced muddy, awful <laughs> Rocky Raccoon. So 
<laughs> You're going to love it. It's going to be cold and muddy. It's exactly <laughs> it's what you want. It's going to be sunshine and 20 degrees. I'm just going to be texting you the whole time going, it's what you want. <laughs> you, you paid for this. It's what you asked for. <laughs> I know. And you probably have, you probably have service out there too. So uh, you do most of the race. Yeah. So so I, I will the, definitely be texting you. The past couple of races I've done, I haven't had service. So Eve's like, I get a, I get blown up by Eve afterward. How'd it go? What, what's going on? What are you doing? And then I, I'm like texting you throughout and they all come through at the end. Yeah. Yeah. And this one's, I'm going to have service and be like, oh, stop. Yeah, I'm 30 and like, it sucks. Funny enough yet? <laughs> <laughs> no, the, it was like the worst med I've ever seen there, but um, I don't think it was worse than your 100 miler. So yeah, I, uh, I'll show you mud. I'll one up you. Well, um, what kind of gear do you wear? I didn't know I was going to go with that. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm pretty, pretty brand loyal. I run in ultra shoes I have for um, over four years exclusively. Uh, I wear the Timps and Lone Peak and Olympus and Torrens and Escalante. So a lot of them. Um, I just started wearing, and I have to give a huge shout out to this tiny little company, um, Alpacas of Montana, some of their socks with alpaca wool. They are amazing and they are great in desert heat and cold slot canyon water and lots of good stuff. Um, I wear a lot of uh, Nathan Sports stuff. I love their packs. I've been wearing their packs for the entirety of running ultras. Um, run Gooder. And Koros. I think that's it. I should give a shout out to Spring too. I don't wear them, but I use Spring. <laughs> so. Sometimes you wear them, I think. Sometimes I do wear them. There's a lot of Spring on my gel and usually down my shirt by the end of races. I know. So. I always have it all over my pack and all over myself. And it's just like, oh my yeah. God. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a messy thing. <laughs> it's a pretty glamorous sport, you know? I'm in, I'm intrigued to see if Spring freezes. So I have a couple left and I've been saving them because they don't expire. They expire the weekend before Rocky. So I'm like, ah, they'll be fine. But I want to take one out and see if it freezes or not. Hmm. I don't know. I would guess that it's more likely to freeze than something with a maltodextrin base, like a goo. Yeah. Um, because I think the they have a heavy banana base and banana freezes yeah, that's true. fast. Uh, rice it's pretty freezable too. And that's the other main thing. So yeah. I'm guessing they might, uh, that'll be interesting. And you definitely don't want to take like anything with honey because that's, Oh no, I would, yeah, you would bad like... news. Um, <laughs> I learned that on a couple of mountain summits early on. I was like, Oh no, I can't do this when it's cold. Um, a lot of people have been telling me peanut butter cups, they don't freeze. And so, um, I've, I've taken a few of those out on runs. And so that's what I've kind of been feeling with a little bit, but I don't well, know. Well, and things like sweet, Uncrustables but... are kept frozen and then you can eat them when they're like crispy, I guess, like <laughs> crispy. So true. Report back. I will. Good intel. It is. It's all just like trial and error out here because I don't yeah. have a clue what's going on. It's like, no, I, I like it. It's really good. Really well, good that intel. didn't work and that works. So there we go. <laughs> No, but the freezing thing is good to know because that's not something I have, um, you know, the ability to really practice and be well-versed in. So I do keep one of the advantages of coaching a bunch of athletes and then working also indirectly with, with more is we can crowdsource this info and like uh, race intel or food stuff like that. I try to keep a like mental Rolodex of that because sometimes it comes in handy for myself. You sh you'll start doing that too, both of you, as you coach more, like filing away things that um, you can dole out as coaching tidbits. So, one thing I've noticed is uh, I had issues with my bottles freezing, but I switched to a smaller pack, and I put a bladder in there, and I put it against my just shirt, and then I was mm -hmm. able—I wasn't able to put bottles underneath my jackets, but I was able to put a bladder underneath my jackets. It look—I look oh. like the hunchback of Notre Dame, but yeah. I was—you uh, <laughs> know. I'm not out there trying to impress anybody, so. Yeah, and I think <laughs> if you have any additive in your water, it should be less likely to freeze. Any Anything with sugar or salt should make it the freezing point. Uh oh, Robbie, is this the time when I when I tell her? Or do we wait till we get off to, to what, tell, tell her? Me. <laughs> well, I'll wait. I'll wait till I get off. We've mentioned it on the podcast before, but oh, I'll, I wait, I'll wait. Oh, hey, no. <laughs> um, 
So we're, we're trying to grow our network a little bit. Um, so we ask all of our guests who we should interview, someone who maybe been on a cool adventure, doesn't necessarily have to be running based. So who would you suggest that we interview? I would say my favorite female elite, Tessa Chester, who is based out of Flagstaff, Arizona. Um, she's coming off of some bad luck and injury, but she just ran, I have to actually look up which race she just ran in Cape Town and um, took UTCT and took fourth female there. Um, yeah, she's awesome and outspoken and really true to herself. And I think an up and coming star in the field who's uh, more under the radar than she should be, but also just a really um, amazing woman. She spoke at our women's retreat last year and um, I, I love talking with her and I love listening to her and she's awesome. So cool. interview her. We will definitely put her on the list. I appreciate it. <laughs> so we'll give you a little bit of time to shout out whatever you want to shout out. Uh, where can people find you? Where can people find Rising Mountain Coaching if they want to get a hold of you? Um, Lay it out there. Okay, so we are on um, both Instagram and Facebook, Rising Mountains Coaching, um, and the website is risingmountainscoaching.com. That's mountains with an S. Um, Instagram is probably the easiest way to find us. You can reach out through DM or email through the content contact link that uh, goes to the website. Uh, you can also reach out to me on my personal Instagram, which is palindrome underscore RNR. Um, that's a reference to my old linguist days. So, uh, and my name is a palindrome. Um, so palindrome runner, uh, I think that's it then. Yeah. Just that on Instagram. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank, thank you so much for coming. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me on guys. It was good to chat with you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you for coming on. Thank you for listening. This podcast has been produced and edited by Backbeat Sound. Come and find us on Instagram at BackbeatSound1776 or email us at BackbeatSound1776 at gmail.com.